This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Sales gains for the biggest U.S. department store chain. Macy's shares are up 11% today. Is this the resurgence of bricks and mortar or the last dying gasp? Here to tell us more is Bloomberg's Lindsay Rupp. Lindsay, I feel like this was a surprise. Is this a surprise? Uh, Yeah, it was definitely surprising. The bar was pretty low for Macy's, but they definitely cleared it. And I think they're setting the uh, department stores that report tomorrow, Penny's and Nordstrom's, up to really uh, have to have to. Show some pretty good results. Yeah, nobody was really expecting them to do this well. The uh, what? What do you? What's what's the big driver of this? So they said they're really jazzed about the consumer. They think the consumer is spending again. Importantly for them, the international tourist is coming back. They uh. saw the only the second gain in international tourism spending since 2014. So that that's big for them. They do a lot of tourist business. That's but, a long time. Yeah, right? Why well, why do tourists find Macy's so interesting? Forgive me. It's a fun I'm just store, that 34th yeah. Street store if you're a tourist. I don't know. It's not like... I, it's not like a lot of things in Europe or in Asia. Um, but, yeah, they saw a big uptick um, in Macy's and in Bloomingdale's for international tourists. But I think the big thing is they're managing inventories better. They're starting to see some of those strategies pay off. They're holding less stuff, so they have less junk to mark down when it doesn't sell. And that made a big difference. So they're doing stuff behind the scenes that the customers don't normally see. Yeah. You know, I think you walk into a Macy's and you think about, oh, my God, there's just going to be stuff everywhere, like 18 different black dresses that all look almost exactly the same. Uh, they're they're trying to fix that. They want their stores to be a lot more shoppable, a lot more easy to navigate, um, and to be clearly delineated. Where's the off-price backstage stuff? Where's the stuff that's on clearance? And where can I use my coupons? What's new? Um, so that that's going to pay off if they can do it well. So does that mean they have there's more optimism longer term? I think there is some optimism longer term that maybe these uh, efforts they're putting into place are actually starting to pay off, that they're going to be able to reinvest in the stores that remain and they've closed the worst performers, that they're going to be able to keep up with online and mobile developments. But even if you're a bricks and mortar company, you would expect to kill it online. Is Macy's killing it online? Yeah, they're a huge online business. I think the stat is they're like the seventh biggest uh, online retailer in the world. Um, oh, wow. Or maybe even higher than that. Yeah, they're actually surprisingly good on the internet. Um <laughs> They were looking to also okay. I'm putting it out there. My husband hates that I like. I'm so, but I love TJ Maxx, right? Because I love that I can get great brands, but You're I can get Maxinista. them at a, I'm a Maxinista that I can get it at a better price. Um, and M- Macy's is going in that direction. That's yes. the backstage, yeah, right? That's backstage. Can, do we have any idea about that number? What it means for the company? What kind of growth we're seeing? They're opening a lot more of them this year, uh, and they're doing it in Macy's stores. There was some fear initially that those would cannibalize the Macy's stores, but they actually give the stores that they're in a big lift. They say that people who are already in the stores, they shop more because they're coming for backstage and they shop the full line or they shop the full line and then buy more at backstage. Do they break out those numbers yet, though, Lindsay? No. No, So we don't know exactly. But they do say that it gives them a significant lift. They're Mm -hmm. rolling out 100 more this year. Uh, So that's a pretty big bet. And you know what? They're doing it without even advertising the chain. Like, they haven't done any television or, or traditional marketing around backstage. Yeah, exactly. It's only something you know about if you shop at Macy's. Huh. 
Is this success of Macy's going to translate for the other companies that you mentioned? It's giving people a pretty good feeling about Kohl's and pennies for sure. Nordstrom's a little bit different because it tends to cater to right. a higher end market. But um, yeah, you know, I think people are feeling really good about this in retail uh, writ large. Uh, you know, Nike is up at a high today. I think people are starting to think, okay, maybe the consumer is coming back. She and she and he want to spend on apparel. They want to buy beauty, um, and maybe that there's hope for some of these traditional retailers. Why is Kohl's up so much? They're up almost twenty percent this year. They report on Tuesday. Um, yeah, they've done a lot of really good initiatives too in terms of speed. I think giving them a big boost is their Amazon partnership. They're piloting a partnership with Amazon where you can return Amazon goods into their stores. And there have been some analyst reports that have said this seems to be giving them a boost in traffic, and people aren't just dropping stuff off. They're they're shopping, too. So I think people are bullish on that Amazon thing. Yeah. The the second biggest meme uh, in business reporting to – behind the yield curve, is that malls are dead. Yeah. Macy's is the flagship store for a lot of malls. Absolutely. Are we, are we talking about a turnaround here? Too early to tell? What? I think it's a little early to tell. It's only their second straight quarter of uh, comparable sales gains. So it's really, I think it's a little early to be doing the happy dance. But, um, you know, they, they, they think this is going to continue. They raised their full year forecast. I think if you can get the right mix of stores, I mean, malls aren't as a whole going away. The worst malls are. Everyone acknowledges we have too many of those. So if Macy's can get out of those leases and monetize the good real estate they have, then yeah, they could be in a good position. I'm always curious about when it comes to a retail, like who is the customer? Who is the Macy's customer? Macy says its customer is uh, sort of a middle woman. So I guess she's probably in her 30s to maybe her 60s. She's uh, middle income. She's sort of the every American woman who wants fashion and wants it at a good price. And they think that she wants their proprietary brands. They're doing a lot of their own in-house brands. And they think that she, you know, is really savvy and she shops a lot online and she shops a lot at TJ Maxx. And so they want her to come back into the mall to shop for her whole family. Hmm. Well, except for the age she just described you, Carol. <laughs> Which you're, one? You're younger. <laughs> I, full disclosure, I'm wearing a... You can come ma- back any time you want. <laughs> I'm wearing a uh, jacket that I bought at Macy's and pants that I bought at Kohl's. So I guess I'm the customer. Yeah, what? absolutely. Yeah. Which is very sad and pathetic. But do you the, shop at malls a lot? Uh, you're I in try Jersey. to avoid it. Yeah. 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 I try to avoid it. But. Well, they don't care how you shop Macy's so long as you're shopping Macy's. And they're adding yeah. in, you know, ways for you to check out faster, you know, mobile checkout. They're, uh, they have buy online, pick up in store, which they like to call BOPS. Uh, everyone has a different acronym for that. BOPS. Um, BOPS. They're trying to make it a better experience. You, know, so you can get in and out. I, and what I think is smart is I do think we became overmauled, for lack of a better word, and overstored. And I think, right, the, we're seeing yeah. a pairing back. So maybe there are some good models out there. They just had too much. Right. I mean, at a certain point, supposedly, one the theory is we'll find an equilibrium, a balance between the right number of stores where you're driving people online and the, and a good online presence. I think the right equilibrium is click and buy. <laughs> That's my equilibrium. <laughs> I don't have to go out in the store. Lindsay Rep, thank you so much. Special Thanks, TV Lindsay. retail reporter at Bloomberg News. Mobile keeps calling regulators saying, let's get uh, this deal done with Sprint for a look at what that deal may be, uh, mean to the broader telecom industry. Let's bring in Alex Gelman, Chief Executive Officer at Vertical Bridge. It's a private owner and manager of communication infrastructure in the U.S. They're based in Boca Raton, uh, Florida, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Is it Boca Raton or Boca Raton? I always say it incorrectly. Whichever you prefer. No, what is correct? Raton, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, nice to have you here with Bob and myself. Um, you guys, you own 
and lease towers, right? Yes. Um, billboards, all that good stuff. Um, tell me about the T-Mobile and Sprint deal, if it finally ultimately gets done. What does it mean for the industry? Does it really change things much, at least from your perspective? Um, from our perspective, it doesn't change things that much. Uh, the key for, for our market is capital investment from uh, anyone who's seeking to use wireless communications. You so, just want them all spending money. Exactly. <laughs> um, we provide locations for anyone who seeks uh, to put antennas to work. The, the key is uh, for the health of our business is the capital spending. So I think that um, a stronger T-Mobile uh, is a positive going from – Four to three is a negative, and I think they could offset. I think the interesting um, factor will be how do AT&T and Verizon react to a much stronger, bigger, sort of co-equal T-Mobile? Because T-Mobile has been the most successful operator for the last several years, really driving the growth in the industry, and now they're going to be looking them eye to eye. So how will – you must be planning for that eventuality. So how will that affect the other two? Um, I, I feel that you'll see a step up in capital spending by both AT&T and Verizon. Uh, I do believe John Ledger when he says it will um, push 5G faster. Okay. What do you- wait, wait, wait. Stop. Because oh, 5G oh. is the next thing like everybody's looking forward right. to. But, you know, people keep saying, oh, it's, it's just around the corner. It's not just around the corner, though. No. It's several years in the making. Well, I think 5G will be marketed just around the corner. Yeah. But I think the 5G that is 5G in the sense of the next technology standard, which is much faster bandwidth, right. uh, billions of connected devices, that's that's a ways away. I would say that's probably uh, uh, 2021, 2020. Some, some, you'll start to see that rolled out commercially. Is your infrastructure able to handle that tech, new technology? Yes. Our infrastructure is agnostic to the technology. So we basically think of it as we have uh, the building, the tower is a building. Um, what copier is on a certain floor is not our copier, so you can upgrade that anytime you want. So uh, the carriers, the electronics, the antennas are owned by our, our tenants, uh, and we just own the place where they go. Can I ask you, how, when you look at the telecom infrastructure in this country, how much more needs to be built out? Because I'm trying to understand, it's built out fairly well, right? Yes. Or is it? Well, it, it is, and I think that... Um, the rollout from 3G to 4G is a real success story yeah. for, I think, the country in the sense that um, the U.S. was behind uh, Europe, for example, with 3G uh, because we had a fragmented standard and they had a uniform GSM standard. But when we went to LTE, the rollout was very successful and quick, and we really took a leadership position in the world in wireless. So I think there is a lot more investment required for 5G, but there's also a – deep pool of capital looking to invest in infrastructure. Because building on what Bob said, you know, he asked if you guys were ready to come and basically deal with the 5G standard, and you said yes. So I'm trying to understand, you know, telecom companies, and what do they have to spend on to upgrade the telecom if you guys are already able to kind of deal with it? Well, I've seen a statistic that says uh, in the U.S. it's $470 billion to upgrade to 5G. That's a lot. And that's really being – would be spent on – uh, radio equipment, handsets, antennas, people to deploy it, a lot of labor. Um, we're ready in the sense that we have a variety of assets, so we don't just own macro towers or broadcast towers. We also have relationships with billboards, with utilities for rights of way, departments of transportation. 
So you uh, can expand. Tops. Absolutely. You got 61,000 sites nationwide? Yes. How many are there total? Ooh. Well, so towers, there's probably about 300,000 towers. We okay. only have 4,000 towers that we own. Okay. But if you bring in all, you know, every billboard, there's probably 80,000 billboards in the U.S., something in, in, in that order. Seems like there's just that many on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's none in Vermont, so that makes up for it. Okay. So where's um, the growth for you as as for your business? Where do you anticipate the most growth over the next couple of years? Right now, it's building towers. We're building a okay. lot of new towers. Um, T-Mobile is aggressively, for example, building out a lot of the country where they didn't previously offer services. They would roam on AT&T's network. Um, so People still roam. Yeah. yeah. You just don't know it. Wow. Wow. There's no roam light anymore, but you, yeah. you, they are. So, so Timo is aggressively building out, but AT&T also has uh, a partnership with FirstNet, which is a federally funded entity around uh, public safety. Mm-hmm. It's a unified public safety oh, yeah. network. So they've received capital from FirstNet and, and the use of Spectrum, and they're um, using that capital and Spectrum to fill in some of the blanks in the country and rural areas because if you're the police – uh, state police in Montana, you're not signing up for FirstNet unless you have good coverage. This is all going to cost me money, isn't it, Carol? <laughs> I got we got five <laughs> we yes. got five phones in my family. Where they're all going up. Yes. Well, it's a challenge because interestingly, yeah. uh, currently everybody has um, unlimited plans. We got to run. Fun to have you here. Come back again, Thanks. Alex Gilman. He's CEO at Vertical Bridge, based in Boca Raton, Florida. <laughs> Should you be worried when it comes to some of the emerging markets? Um, let's talk about this with David Riedel. He's back with us. He's president and founder at Riedel Research Group. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Uh, David, nice to have you here with uh, Bob and myself. There's been so much going on when I look at the emerging markets, the surprising Malaysian election. You've got the upcoming Mexican election. You've got kind of the love-hate relationship between China and the U.S. And, of course, new tensions in the Middle East. When you look at the world of emerging markets, um, opportunity or some caution here? I think definitely some caution. I think that the uh, markets have been handed a, a, a whole uh, buffet of uh, concerning and risk-raising uh, measures in the last week or so, uh, starting with the Israel-Iran uh, hot war, uh, the exchange of fire there, uh, the surprise Malaysian election last week. Uh, we've got the Mexico election coming up, a left-leaning populist leading very strongly uh, in that July 1st election. I just don't think the market's priced in uh, a lot of these things. The one, hey, David, this is Bob Ivery. The, the one thing that surprised me on your list was Malaysia. Malaysia is not something that keeps me awake at night. What about, uh, the, what about Malaysia should investors here in the United States be concerned with? So Malaysia is on the, uh, the radar screen of a lot of international investors as one of the Asian tigers. It had been a, a favorite during the 1990s, and then people had turned away from it after they implemented capital controls uh, in, in the uh, Southeast Asian financial crisis. And so there's been a, a back and forth between two wings of the uh, of the political spectrum there. Uh, and uh, Mahathir here, who was the leader during the 80s and 90s, uh, came back in in force uh, last week. Surprisingly uh, he, so, right? Yes, it was surprising. And he's 92, yeah. and he's holding together a very uh, disparate uh, 
a coalition of, of opposition members. Uh, so it's a tricky political situation, and I think anyone in ASEAN and anyone in Southeast Asia is keeping an eye on Malaysia today. What's interesting, too, is they just scrapped to a 6% rate on the goods and services tax, and this was a campaign pro- promise by um, Mahathir. And what's interesting is, too, you know, folks uh, in the ratings agencies, whether it's Moody's and others, they've warned that that move would cut government income and kind of widen the budget deficit if they don't figure out some other revenue-raising measures. So when you just start to look at the country fiscally, you got to be a little nervous. That's right. And that's, that's really been a focus of international investors over the last few years. The, the balance sheets of these countries had been improving dramatically in Indonesia and in Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, throughout Southeast Asia. They'd been really focused on improving their tax collection and, and improving their fiscal position, position. So to see a country taking a step back uh, will raise the, the level of risk and, and concern among many investors. One tussle on this list, if I could call it that, is uh, Israel. Um, that did not surprise me. And, but I'm wondering, you know, we've seen uh, spasms of horrible violence there in the past, and it seems everything, not everything, but uh, the markets go back to some semblance of normal. What's different this time? Well, I think it's a hot war between two very substantial powers. Um, people may not realize that Damascus is only some 50 kilometers away from uh, the, the Israeli border, from the, from the Golan Heights. Uh, and and if we had this kind of exchange of fire in the South China Sea, for example, everyone would be tearing their hair out. So I think that um, you're right that this has happened before and it has settled down. Uh, you're right to observe that it's you know it's been four or five days and we didn't have a continuation of this. Uh, but it is concerning. Uh, this was the largest projection of power by Israel uh, into Syria in many many decades, uh, and. Um, I think it should be on people's radar screens. I'll tell you what's really on my radar is I'm just watching the U.S.-China relationships. There's some interesting stories coming up in uh, Bloomberg Business Week this week. But, you know, looks about looks at this relationship and, you know, how they need each other, still need each other, despite the tensions back and forth. But I'm watching China very closely, David, because I think they have definitely got their long-term plan laid out about how they not only want to be selling Chinese good to Chinese consumers, but they want to be selling Chinese goods to the rest of the world. That's exactly right. And, and the whole Made in China 2025 initiative, which is really bringing value-add value chain uh, manufacturing chains all the way into China, uh, is a very specific effort to support certain industries and bring those uh, higher, more automated manufacturing processes into China. Uh, this is a stated goal, uh, and I think the Trump administration is right to to see this as a threat to U.S. intellectual property and, and forced technology transfer. Uh, but it's it's not a problem that's going to go away. So it's something that, uh, you're right, they've got a 100-year view, and they will continue to, to pick away at that. Can I just follow, David? Should the U.S. be tougher on China and push back at this point? I think there is role for the U.S. to, to have a firmer position on China. But even witnessing the, the sort of flip-flop uh, from the administration over the weekend on ZTE, you know, they looked mm-hmm. at that and they thought it was a good idea to put these sanctions on. But then they realized that a lot of U.S. companies were selling stuff to this company and they realized that this was something that the Chinese were going to dig their heels into. And uh, they seem to have caved a little quickly, but uh, it, it is a reminder of how complicated and symbiotic the relationship is. Just sticking with China, just for one more question, David. We, The United States has a $375 billion trade deficit with China, and that seems to be the president's yardstick for whether or not we're doing well vis-a-vis China. Do you think that that is something that we really must uh, narrow in order to, in order to deal with them in a, better, in a better way? 
absolutely not. It's, it's a fairly um, uh, arbitrary figure to, to choose and to focus on so much. I, I think there's a lot of other ways you could measure the symbiotic relationship between U.S. manufacturers and U.S. consumers and Chinese manufacturers and consumers. Uh, so I think that that is just one particular metric that stands out uh, to him and to many people around the world. Uh, but I think there's a lot more nuance to the relationship uh, that people are uh, sort of glossing over. David, just got about 25 seconds. So when you look at the world of emerging markets, is there anywhere that you do want to be? And if so, where? Just quickly. I think you do want to be in your more large liquid names that are more domestically oriented. I would be a buyer in Brazil of domestically oriented names, not so much energy in banks, but domestically oriented consumer names. There are selected good, great names in Hong Kong uh, that, that provide a little bit of a haven. But I'd be in those larger, uh, more liquid names because I think we need to be nimble and be ready for news on NAFTA, uh, news on Mexico and other developments. Yeah, it's certainly keeping us uh, all on our toes. Hey, David, always good to get some time with you. David Riedel, he is president and founder of the Riedel Research Group, joining us. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Our next guest is not calling for a recession in 2020, but he is warning investors to prepare. His name is Jamie Cox. He's the managing partner at Harris Financial Group in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Jamie. How, Hi, how are you? How can investors prepare for a possible recession in 2020? Well, there's a couple of things that uh, folks can do. And, and, and right now, the market is actually giving you a good opportunity to buy some of the sectors that have been beaten up uh, that do really well during bear markets and recession-type events in the, in the marketplace. And that's consumer staples, utilities, and telecom. The high dividend-paying stocks that have been not doing so well now that interest rates have been rising. So while the while these stocks are going down and interest rates are going up, it's a good time to to, to accumulate these stocks over the next little bit, maybe six or eight months. That way, when we do go through the inevitable bear market, uh, your portfolio will be insulated against some of those portfolio losses. What does that bear market look like? Well, a bear market is when uh, stocks drop you know, greater than uh, 15 to 20 percent. And we haven't really seen that type of activity in, in many, many years. In my lifetime, but, Jamie. Yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> well we, we've seen plenty of bear markets, and they come and go. I mean, 2011 was probably the most recent experience we had with a negative market like that. But the, 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 But what we're experiencing is with interest rates rising, we're getting – you know, back to normal. We're going to get back to normal with interest rates. We're going to get back to normal with economic conditions. And with that comes a resumption of the business cycle. So ultimately, there will be some type of recession activity in the future. It just happens that way when things go back to normal, when the Fed hasn't flooded the marketplace with, with free money. So uh, you have to expect that these things are going to happen. And, and in so doing, make sure that your portfolio is ready for that eventuality. And dividends are the way that you get through that as an investor. There's an interesting chart that you've uh, that you've put out in a, in one of your reports here. It's talking about bands of inflation and how well and what kind of return uh, from the, from the stock return you get uh, through certain bands of uh, inflation. Can you explain that to our listeners? 
Yes, a lot of uh, a lot of folks are worried about the effects of inflation on portfolio returns, because we haven't experienced inflation of any levels in many, many, many years, <laughs> probably a couple decades actually. So, rightfully so, people are concerned and don't understand how that would affect their portfolios. And we've been living in an environment that has been below two percent inflation for a while, and we've been accustomed to portfolio returns that are higher than average. So, if you have if you have inflation rates between one and two percent, for example, the average return on the S and P 500 is 13 percent, and now we're living in an environment where inflation is, you know, two percent or higher, but less than three percent. So that two to three percent range, people are concerned that that's going to torpedo the market, and it's not. Uh, history has shown that uh, that the S and P 500 companies and markets generally can do very well and only slightly less than 13% at 11.5 in that environment. So even if inflation rates stay between 2 and 3%, which is what the Fed is telling us their target range would probably look like, then investors are not going to be harmed by inflation rates of that level. And it's only when inflation rates get to be above 4% that you need to worry, because that would indicate that interest rates would have to rise very quickly, and that would definitely put the brakes on the economy and on your stock portfolio. So uh, as long as we stay in this band, we're going to be doing just fine. There's nothing to worry about with inflation yet. Jamie, has anything, though, changed potentially in terms of market cycles, whether it's economic market cycles or financial market cycles, because of the increase in data being used, particularly in the financial markets, and where you have mathematical formulas or you have algorithms that kick in when something happens in the market almost automatically, right? And that can, I think that's why we've all of a sudden seen the increase in volatility. How does that maybe change how long the next bear market might be? I think that it might shorten it. Quite honestly, I mean, most of the time, bear markets tend to materialize over several months where data needs to be confirmed. But we we have the terminal pricing situation now where where the computer models are able able to predict what the worst possible outcome is and then price accordingly. So it's likely that that we have have very small windows of bear markets and that they probably won't last as long as they have in the past, which is actually a good thing for investors, but it also creates a lot higher volatility in the short in the short run, uh, maybe more like we experienced in the early part of, of this year, where you have really high rates of volatility, some scary periods, and then it sort of calms down. That's probably what it's going to look like, more rolling bear markets as opposed to these extended period bear markets. So we're going to have a, a more shallow bear market in the future. Yeah, go ahead. That was kind of a question. Well, it, <laughs> well, 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 what I think it's going to be. Is you have to sharp. raise your 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 voice. Yeah, I know at the it end. didn't sound like a question, <laughs> but help it kind of Sorry, was. Jamie. Go ahead, exactly. Jamie. So, so uh, it, what you're going to have is very sharp declines, which uh, and then and then the recovery. So more V-shaped type bear markets, and and that's actually relatively normal. Except uh, it, I think what, what, what we'll have is, is, is very sharp declines where you get to 10 or 15% very fast. There's not going to be a step function where you sort of go down four or five and then four or five more and then another 10 to wash out. It's probably going to be very quickly to get down to 20%. Uh, and, and, and that's yeah. actually healthy. Uh, and thankfully, we know that, uh, that, that given the abundance of data, that we can get through it a lot more quickly. All right. Nice to check in with you. Jamie Cox, thank you for your time today. Managing partner at Harris Financial Group, $750 million in assets under management. Jamie joining us on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 